Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Today we've got three more texts to look at in our selection of Unitarian Bible translations. Unlike last time, where we focused on Christologically interesting passages, today we'll examine some others, including Luke 23:43, John 7:53-8:11, and 1 Thessalonians 1:3 to look at a punctuation issue, a textual issue, and a grammatical issue. By the end of this episode, we hope you'll have a firmer grasp on the differences between these translations. Of course, we could go on to compare many more verses, but we're going to draw this to an end here, and this episode will round out this series on Unitarian Bible translations. Here now is episode 356, Unitarian Bible Translations, Part 3, with Dr. Jerry Weirbel. Jerry, welcome back. So glad to have you in the studio again today. I'm very glad to be here. We're going to continue on here in this episode with our examination of these Unitarian versions and looking at specific passages. Luke 23:43, which uh, is a familiar verse to many of us, the emphatic diaglot reads, And he said to him, Indeed, I say to thee, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. And pretty much across the board, those of you familiar with this verse, understand the issue with it, which is not a Unitarian-specific issue. But, as it turns out, most Unitarians do add a comma after the word today, so that Jesus is saying to the person today that in the future he will be with him in paradise, except for the emphatic diaglot. The NEV set makes it more explicit. It says, truly, I can say to you today, right now, comma, that you will indeed be with me in paradise. Uh, the New World Translation, truly, I tell you today, comma, you will be with me in paradise. It pretty much right across the board, that's what they all do, except for the emphatic diaglot, which has the comma before today, so that it sounds like Jesus is saying to the, the man being crucified, I'm going to be with you in paradise today. Whereas these other ones are saying, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise, obviously, in the future. So it's just a quick little verse to look at, uh, because this is not germane to Unitarianism, <laughs> conditional immortality, but it does pair well, apparently. Uh, did you want to add anything to that, Jerry? This is typically in contrast to most modern versions that will punctuate differently, having the comma uh preceding today. Uh, and as many people know, but I'll just reiterate it here, is that in the original manuscripts, uh, there was no punctuation. There were no spaces between the words. And so spacing and punctuation are at the discretion of the translator and trying to understand what is the actual flow of logic and what is being asserted by the writer. And so here, what we're, you know, what Unitarian versions are, are doing is they're saying, uh, Jesus is not claiming that that day that they would be in paradise together uh, in the way that uh, paradise is used elsewhere in the scriptures, uh, either referring in the beginning to Eden or in the end referring to the restoration of the heavens and the earth and the new creation. Uh, and so neither one of those were going to be existing that day. And so interpretively, we see the punctuation needing to follow the word today 
as an expression of time of when that was spoken rather than a, uh, a temporal destination of, of that day that they would end up being in uh, the location of paradise. All right, so that was a, that's a quick one. Uh, what do we have next? The next passage we want to look at is one of the most notorious and longest sections of Scripture that has been doubted as being authentic and original. Uh, this is known as the Pericope Adulterae, beginning in John chapter 7, verse 53, and running through chapter 8, verse 11. It deals with the woman caught in adultery and her trial before the Jewish religious leaders, where Jesus comes and uh, then is asked whether or not she should be stoned. He stoops down the sand, writes in the sand, and then says, which of you is without sin? Let him cast the first stone. I mean, this is, this is like a, a very beloved story for most Bible readers. Now, there's been a lot of research done in textual criticism around this passage. And, and by all textual scholars, basically, it is agreed upon to be a non-authentic part of the gospel. Now, the trouble comes is that, well, if it wasn't part of the original manuscript, then it shouldn't be part of the Bible that we publish, correct? And most people say, well, yeah, we want the actual Bible that was given by God. We want the inspired word of God that was given by revelation through holy men as they spoke, as they were moved by the Spirit. But a lot of Bibles still include it, even though it is very doubtful to be authentic. And I wrote a whole paper reviewing the manuscript evidence, uh, both internal and external. And it seems to be quite persuasive that uh, this really was a later addition to the manuscript. Now, when we look at Bible versions, most include it. Most modern Bible versions still include this passage of Scripture, including the Unitarian versions that we are reviewing here. We see that in the ED, it is included uh, with single brackets, but has a footnote uh, saying that it should be omitted. The NEV uh, includes it, but doesn't have any mention of its textual uncertainty. The NWT, they omit it from the main text, but they include it in a marginal note. The OGF OMMT includes in a footnote that the earliest manuscripts do not include this passage. And the KGV includes it with double brackets, and the REV includes it with single brackets, but with a grayed out font. The NWT is the only Unitarian version that we're reviewing here that actually takes it out of the main body of the scriptures and puts it in a footnote. And this seems like an honest thing to do because if it's not actually part of the main text, then it seems like it shouldn't be included with the main text. But uh, because of people's strong affinity for it, and also in my research, there was a very similar parallel account uh, mentioned in the uh, first or second century that correlated strongly to what is described in this passage. And therefore, there is a precedent for potentially historicity, meaning that this pericope was actually potentially based on something that actually happened historically. Just a clarifier on the, the New World Translation, Jerry. In their standard handheld published edition, paper Bible edition, it is not included in the footnote. But in the online edition, which a lot of people use, you click on it and then it does include it in the margin. So it, it depends on which, whether you're using the electronic or the paper. And so uh, it's really interesting here in the paper version, I'm just looking at it now. Again, this is the 2013, not the one from the 1980s. 
But this one from 2013, it ends chapter 7 at verse 52, and then starts chapter 8 with verse 12. So they didn't reversify chapter 8, and the footnote simply reads, a number of ancient authoritative manuscripts omit from verse 53 to chapter 8, verse 11. That's it. That's all, that's all they say about it. <laughs> very, very bold move, I'd say. One thing that we can see from all these Unitarian Bible versions, uh, except for the NEV, is that they are aware of this textual problem and the research that's been done to show the, the doubtfulness of its authenticity or originality. Some make a stronger point to make that clear. Uh, I think the OGF OMMT making a note that it doesn't appear in the earliest manuscripts is important. Um, I think, uh, depending upon the notation of double brackets or single brackets, those usually express doubtful parts of the text. And what we did in the in the REV is we basically graded it out so that it really isn't part of the main... It's hard to read. Yeah. We graded it out so that it, we people know that it's not part of the, of the regular text. And we also, if, if you click on it, we give a lengthy explanation in the commentary about its doubtfulness uh, as being part of the original manuscript. So, uh, but the NEV, leaving this without any indication of, for the reader to know that, that this actually is probably not part of the Bible, actually uh, misleads the reader. Uh, wouldn't you say so, Sean? Yeah, it, it's very concerning to me. It, it really is, because the Greek text does not include these verses, the oldest and best manuscripts, as, as you stated before. And so to include it and then not even let the reader know. I mean, the NEV is a study Bible. It's got tons of notes everywhere. And for there to be no mention of the fact that this is entirely absent from the earliest and best manuscripts is really a flaw in this translation. All right, well, let's move on to another text, 1 Thessalonians 1.3. This is not a doctrinal text. This is a translator's text, uh, just seeing how translators handle a collection of phrases that when translated woodenly and literally, kind of obscure the meaning. So I, I think this is really going to be an interesting one for us. Why don't you take the lead on this one, Jerry, since you were the one who suggested it? Yeah, the passage really deals with a matter of syntax. And one part of Bible translation, actually a huge part of Bible translation in the New Testament, uh, deals with handling a particular case called the genitive case. And what's interesting about 1 Thessalonians 1.3 here is that we have a string of genitive phrases, a noun with a genitive, and we have three of them right in a row. And as Sean was just saying, that if you translate them as normally is translated like the genitive, uh, the sort of generic way to translate it is the word of. So if you'd say the day of the Lord, uh, it's it, the of the Lord is the genitive phrase modifying the word day. Well, here we have, as it reads in the ED, never forgetting in the presence of our God and Father, your operative faith yeah, think... and laborious love and patient hope of our Lord Jesus Christ. The phrase operative faith yeah. literally is work of faith in the Greek text. And laborious love is labor of love. And patient hope is patience of hope. These are, these are three genitive clauses here, and how to translate them is the critical issue. 
what we see here in the ED is that they actually make the genitive phrases into a sort of adjectives, or basically, rather than work of faith, it's operative faith. Work then has is modified by of faith, a work of faith. And in the genitive, you can have a whole cascade of different meanings that the genitive can take. It could be work that is derived from faith, work that is part of faith, work that produces faith, work that is related to faith, work that is associated with faith, work that is in reference to faith. There's just so many different ways to look at the genitive. One important aspect of Bible translation, I believe, is to help the reader understand this real diverse genitive case. And so sometimes when the English translation of the straight genitive doesn't make any sense, I think that calls for a need to actually translate the genitive. Because in the ancient culture, the genitive would have been understood in these ways by the listener or reader. But in our modern Western ears and, and eyes, we, we look at this and it's like, what does work of faith mean? A work of faith. Uh, does that mean the faith is a work? Or, or what, what does that mean? Or what is patience of hope? Does hope have patience? Or there's, there's no real clear way to construe these if we just use the word of all the time. And so going down the versions here, uh, the NEV says, Remembering without ceasing before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now one thing I can say is that that is a straight rendering of the Greek text. That reproduces the text quite formally. The NWT, For we continually remember your faithful work, your loving labor, and your endurance because your hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. This, actually, the genitive is turned into an adjectival sense where it's not work of faith. It reads faithful work. And rather than labor of love, it's the of love is turned into an adjective loving labor. Uh, but then the final phrase, your endurance because of your hope, uh, this is rather than endurance of hope, they put in this causal sense of endurance because of your hope. Uh, in the OGFOMMT, it says, we constantly remember your work of faith, labor of love, and perseverance in the hope of our Lord Jesus Messiah in the presence of our God, our Father. That last phrase there, uh, I'm not sure if it's a typo or not, uh, our God, our Father, or our God, the Father, or our God and Father. Yeah, I think the Greek has and there. Well, if it's Kai, then it definitely should be, should be and in the presence of our God and Father there at the end of that verse. But what we see here in the OGF OMMT is that the first two phrases are translated quite formally. Uh, but then the third one is adapted a little bit. So we have work of faith, labor of love. And perseverance, which is uh, the word here for patience, uh, the Greek word hupamane here being translated as perseverance, perfectly good translation for that word. It's perseverance in the hope of our Lord Jesus Messiah. So rather than perseverance of hope, uh, the OGFOMMT uh, turns that into a prepositional phrase, perseverance in the hope of our Lord Jesus Messiah. Then the KGV says, we remember in the presence of our God and Father, your faithful activity, labors of love, and enduring hope in our Lord Jesus the Messiah. We see the first phrase, work of faith, here is translated adjectively, faithful activity. 
Then we have the more formal labors of love. And then the enduring hope. So this would be endurance of hope collapsed into enduring hope, where hope, rather than being part of the genitive, now is the main noun being modified by endurance or hupamane, enduring hope. And then finally, the REV says, remembering before our God and Father, your work motivated by trust and labor prompted by love and endurance based on hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. What we did here in the REV is we took these three genitive phrases and we looked at uh, how can the genitive be functioning in the sense of what type of work is in connection with faith, what labor is meant to be in connection with love, and how is endurance then connected with hope. And we thought a very descriptive way to do this was that the work is either produced by or motivated by trust, which is being, that's the translation of the Greek word pistis there for faith. And that labor, the labor of love is basically because of love, it prompts labor. Now, work and labor are close synonyms in Greek, uh, but there are slight differences. Uh, this labor prompted by love. And finally, endurance, the endurance of hope, we translate it as endurance based on hope. So it's, it's more like endurance in connection with or in relation to the hope we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so the thing about the genitive case is it's so flexible, it's hard to pin down, but I think that the English reader, the translator does a service to them by helping them understand difficult genitive phrases in English. Yeah, this is an interesting point about translations that I, I really uh, benefited in reading Gordon Fee and Mark Strauss's book on how to choose a translation, much of much of which, by the way, I I've, I felt was just propaganda for the NIV. But there was one chapter on this genitive subject. His chapter on the genitive really opened my eyes to the problem with translating the genitive strictly literally, and that is that it actually can mislead the reader into having a false understanding of what the phrase means. Uh, and so I, I do appreciate the, these different translations that really wrestle with it. I think it is appropriate to weigh the options out and figure out which one makes the most sense. And then, uh, just because I'm, I'm always going to say this, anytime there's an ambiguity, anytime there's a decision that translators make that affects the meaning of the text, I want to see a footnote. I want to see the translators say, you know what, it could have gone this other way as well. Uh, this is obviously not the kind of passage that anyone's building a doctrine out of, some sort of like cornerstone in some big doctrinal edifice, right? But it's Bible, and it's important, and we care, and, and it affects our lives. So I appreciate you bringing this up. Listen, Sean, if you want the translator to make a footnote every single time they make any sort of interpretive decision, you're going to have 90% of footnotes in your Bible and 10% of the text. I, I would welcome it. I don't care. I want to know. You know, that's just how I'm wired. And I know it. not everybody agrees uh, with the extent of transparency that I seek. I just prefer openness and honesty wherever I can get it. With digital Bibles now, that's, that's much more of a possibility, right? Where we, we, we use Bibles in our apps, and we can just look at the text, but like, if we want to, you know, we could click on it and see further insight, so... 
I think that that's one of the advantages uh, of online versions to be able to include uh, copious footnotes. But then also the other great thing, and this is one thing I really advocated for in the REV, is that we produce a what's called a reading version, where we actually uh, take out the verse superscript numbers for the verses and kind of just allow the uh, reader to read the text, which has a lot of value, but then be able to also have uh, footnotes and uh, commentary links to various explanations as well. And this is something that a lot of Bibles online are offering, being able to have like a reader's version that the person doesn't get obstructed with uh, a whole bunch of symbols and letters and numbers all scattered throughout the text, kind of like graffiti, but being able to just en enjoy reading the scriptures. Okay. Well, uh, some of us like graffiti, I guess. Anyhow, I feel I would be remiss if I didn't take a position here and uh, say that I, I don't recommend the emphatic diaglot. I, I, I said that last time, and I'll say it again. I think Benjamin Wilson was a superstar scholar. I think he did a great job for the 1860s. But uh, by today's standards, you know, the, his translations, it, you know, it's not bad or anything, but it's just... It's just based on an inaccurate Greek text. The NEV, I, I, I would caution readers against the NEV based on what we've seen here today. It does have significant mistakes in it, translating the Greek, and, and, and so you need to be warned about that. As far as the other four translations go, I, I think any one of them is fine. The New World Translation, the King, King James, uh, the Kingdom of God version, and the Revised English version, all of these three fall more on the formal, more literal side of the fence of translation. And then the OGF OMMT is more on the dynamic equivalent slash paraphrase style or the amplified Bible style of translation. So you need to be aware of that when you're reading it. I would say the New World Translation is the biggest surprise because I think I kind of bought into the hype that Many mainstream Christians say the New World Translation is just a biased piece of trash put out there to teach and indoctrinate Jehovah's Witnesses' teachings. And I, 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 I just don't, I don't see that based on the review I've done here. There might be some other verses where the version is, in, in a very biased and unfair way, tweaking the text. But it seems like everything that we've seen is at least possible, if not probable, with the possible exception of uh, John 1.1. 1, 1. That has been a, a bit of a surprise. I, I figured the New World Translation would just be a disaster, and to be honest, it, it's, it's been pretty darn good. In fact, in, in one sense, it wins the Courageous Award for omitting the spurious incident with Jesus and the adulterous woman. Uh, so I'm not—don't take—I don't want you to take this as a hearty endorsement of the New World Translation, but I uh, just want to say I was surprised by that. You know, you have to figure this out for yourself as far as which version you would like to read. Uh, I will say that the REV definitely won the Restitutio Poll Award uh, when I put out a poll on Facebook last week. Far and away, most people voted for the REV, so perhaps that's the most popular version among Unitarian uh, Christians today. Yeah, I would say that the NWT and the REV, um, because they are produced through a translation committee. Um, I think that's an important quality of those translations, uh, whereas the other ones are produced by a single individual. And whenever we are doing something on our own or by ourselves, um, uh, we can sometimes tend to to get kind of tunnel vision or 
get caught in our in our own thoughts and and sometimes not be able to see the forest through the trees and things like that. So I do value the idea of uh, translation committees that are producing Bibles. As I said in the previous episode, that I I think it helps hone and refine the work where you have other people who are speaking into and double checking things um, because we're all fallible and we can we can make mistakes. I do want to put a plug in for the REV that I've really worked hard and I'm going to be continuing to revise the New Testament and my coworker John Shanehite and Bill Schlegel um, right now. We're hoping to also be able to expand the translation committee. You know, we're trying to make this the the best version possible and we welcome uh, feedback and anybody who's reading it, if they find uh, places where they think there are mistakes, we, we'd like to discuss those with people. And we're just trying to, like the NET, have a, kind of like a, a crowd involvement in peer reviewing the work. And as Sean mentioned, it is updated in real time uh, immediately as we are working on it. Uh, we're currently, uh, we just finished the book of First Thessalonians. We'll be proceeding on to Second Thessalonians here soon. And also, you can view the REV online in any browser at revisedenglishversion.com. And we also have a nice app that we've developed for both Apple and Android devices uh, for free of use and um, with a, a lot of really great features. Uh, so I suggest just uh, check it out and, um, and, and enjoy using it. Obviously, throw my bias in there that I think that that's <laughs> that's a, a wonderful version, and I, I really pray that, you know that it's a version that serves the Unitarian uh, community and Bible students worldwide for years and years to come. Yeah, this is an interesting point you make about feedback because that's that would be my greatest criticism against the New World Translation and Jehovah's Witnesses in general is that they don't accept feedback from anyone ever, no matter what. They have their governing body. And they make the decisions, and that's just that. But I, I will say, in, in line with what you mentioned there, that knowing both translators for the OGF, OMMT, and the KGV, Anthony Buzzard and Ray Faircloth, and being in contact with both of them, I can certainly say that they both also would appreciate any feedback that anybody has uh, as far as different ways to translate things and you know, the goal here is that we we would grow closer and closer to the most accurate way of saying things over time. And, uh, you know, the OGF OMMT is in its second revision right now at the printer. The KGV is in its third edition. The REV uh, just basically gave up printing paper Bibles because there, it's in a constant flux, right, Jerry? Uh, so... Uh, these really are moving targets. In fact, we had to scramble to get updated versions of many of these different Bibles for this episode. So uh, stay tuned as these change and grow and hopefully develop in a, in a more accurate and helpful way. In closing, this has been a real privilege for Sean and I to be able to share with you guys uh, these Unitarian versions and be able to kind of explain things uh, from a perspective of people who read Greek and who um, are actively interested in Bible translations and uh, their strengths and weaknesses. But one thing I want to mention, though, here as we close this episode is that uh, it seems to me that a lot of people and in circles that I've been involved in, that there's a spirit of criticism toward other Unitarians, biblical Unitarians or Unitarian Christians, uh, that seems to be really off the mark. And what I mean is that we'll make critical remarks of uh, other Unitarian Bible translations of which we have maybe slight disagreements on certain theology, but then we're, we will openly 
uh, allow uh, other translations, which we have an enormous amount of disagreement theologically with, that seems to be kind of backwards. I think we should rather be much more supportive of each other because we share a, a, a large degree of theological overlap. And the what we're trying to do is, with these Bible versions, the Unitarian Bible versions, we're trying to get the word out that these are available for people who are in a, a Unitarian theology sort of camp, people who see that there is one God, the Father, and that there are Bible versions that can help people understand the scriptures from that viewpoint, uh, unlike most other modern translations, which you have to then encounter a lot of theological hurdles uh, throughout the scriptures. So I implore you, brothers and sisters, to lay down the, the torches and pitchforks toward each other uh, who are in the Unitarian Christian movement. And we need to really rally around each other. And there is value to each one of these Unitarian versions. And as I think Sean mentioned in his class, you know, it's good to read multiple versions of the Bible. And so we recommend you guys pick up or purchase or utilize these versions in your study and in your devotional time and cross-check different versions because you'll find that sometimes one way that a, a Bible will translate the verse may not reflect some nuance that is brought out in a different version. So please enjoy these Bibles and let's really work to have a mindset of that we're, we're all trying to add value to each other's walk of faith and be able to understand the scriptures and know our Lord better. So uh, that's my final admonition and just really thanks for listening to this episode. Having a gracious heart and attitude towards other people that are within your own camp or Maybe you don't want to say they're in your camp. Maybe they're in the camp that's just right across the street from yours. Okay. So <laughs> I know we are all concerned about protecting our borders. Why aren't we in the same camp before that close? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, look, I, I don't think this is a discussion about that. The, uh, the differences between us and, and there are there. And it's not that the differences don't matter. They do matter. And sometimes they do affect translation. I'm, I don't think Jerry's trying to paper over the differences and say that they're not significant between different Unitarian Christian groups. And so I think it's really important that we do have a gracious attitude towards each other and that when we criticize, that we back up our criticism with evidence. Uh, we saw this recently on some statements made about the last episode in, in, on Unitarian Bible translations where there would be a criticism and it would just say, oh, they're just biased or they're all just wacky or whatever. And it's like, whoa, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Give me a specific verse. Make a case. Don't, don't just hand wave all translations that are not completed by people from mainstream denominations as being illegitimate. Come on. So that's something that's important for us to consider that we could be more gracious and supportive of each other even if we do have significant disagreements. But anyhow, thanks, Jerry, for taking the time and uh, being with me here today. Glad to be. Thanks, everyone. Well, this concludes this series. Uh, just to let you know, in the show notes for this episode, which you can get on your device or at restitutio.org, you can read Werewolf's research paper on John 753 to 811. I've got a link there entitled, My Favorite Fake Bible Passage. Well, that's a juicy title, and that's a nice 10-page essay examining the historical evidence for and against, including the 
incident with the adulterous woman where Jesus said, he who is without sin can cast the first stone. And uh, so if you want to go deeper with that, I highly recommend that article. Also, we got a new review. This review comes from Middle Kid 2, who writes, I would highly recommend to any Christian to listen to Sean's classes. He delivers them so well. Being a not-so-educated country boy, it is hard for me to stay focused while listening to biblical studies, but Sean's delivery and passion makes it easy for anyone to understand these subjects. Thanks so much, Middle Kid 2. You have to forgive my non-country accent, my New York, which, by the way, for those of you unfamiliar with New York State, the accent that you hear coming out of my mouth is a very, very mild accent. I mean, my goodness. If I could bring New York City people here on this mic, you would hear the difference. But anyhow, some people say I have an accent, but I'm glad you can understand it, and I'm also glad that the style is not uh, too heady, although, <laughs> and this is funny that uh, this review came in here because we were super technical in this episode, so uh, please forgive me for that. I'm planning to be a lot more down-to-earth in the upcoming interviews that I have planned for the next, some good human interest material, dealing with some of the issues of our own age. But anyhow, I wanted to just thank Middle Kid 2 for writing this review and leaving a rating. I know that a, a couple of you have left ratings since the uh, last time I mentioned this, but for some reason or another, we are still at a 4.8 out of 5, and I was really kind of hoping that this one would tip it over the edge, but it hasn't. So if you're holding out and you don't mind dealing with the frustrations of navigating the Apple podcast review process, I sure would appreciate it. And thanks to so many of you who have already done it. I really do think that this is something that can help lots of people find this podcast. And uh, indeed, our listenership has been steadily going up. We took a huge dip in March, April because, I don't know, COVID-19. But it's not just recovered to where it was before. It's now actually much higher uh, listenership than it was before, which is great. So thanks to all the, those of you who are sharing this online, emailing it around to relatives and friends and uh, getting other people interested in these issues. And these issues are important. I mean, I know I've been going on about the Bible and translation and manuscripts and all this for, I don't know, 30 episodes, but we are actually going to be moving out of that, transitioning into some more real-life type stuff with some interviews that I mentioned. But hopefully we have something for everyone here. Uh, well, that's it for today. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can give at restitudio.org. Stay tuned for next week for my exclusive interview with someone who recently got and recovered from COVID-19 with absolutely no lingering side effects, I'll have you know as well. So this person is going to be sharing about the experience. You don't want to miss this one. We'll see you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear. <laughs>